Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On November 15, 2019, the Center hosted a conference titled Technology, Innovation, and Regulation. Needless to say, that's a pretty broad theme, and it provided for a wide array of interesting discussions of some of the ways in which regulation affects technological innovation and some of the ways in which technological innovation affects regulation. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website. And the videos of the discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's keynote remarks delivered by Kate Lauer. Kate is an advisor at GECO, a fintech startup, and she previously served as PayPal's head of global regulatory strategy. In these remarks, uh, Ms. Lauer gives an overview of the regulatory environment of fintech today and in recent years. It's a very interesting discussion. Now, immediately after her remarks, Ms. Lauer uh, realized that she had slightly misspoke um, when she was discussing uh, Bitcoin. She said it was worth, uh, Bitcoin today was worth such and such billion uh, when she meant a million. She laughed about it afterwards. We all make mistakes. I don't think you'll find that it detracts from her very interesting conversation. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for the center to the center for inviting me to participate and to give a keynote to this conference. I found the first two discussions really fascinating, um, and I'm looking forward to this afternoon's discussion. Um, so I have been thinking about um, technology and innovation for decades. Uh, it was, I think, in 1990 that I read a book by um, Rene Dubot, who was a microbiologist and an experimental pathologist. Um, and he talked about what happens when technology and science gets ahead of the human condition and the way we live as humans. And um, and he queried, what is the responsibility of scientists and of innovators um, and people who, who implement in- innovation to um, take into consideration or to try to understand in advance what the impact of the innovation would be on humans. Um, I was just fascinated by this this concept, and I carried that book around with me for a few years, um, just looking at it. So, um, and, and I think that it's important to our discussion today. Um, it's been really important to me in the work that I've done that Adam described. Um, so for about 17 years from 2000 to 2017, I was working very hard with regulators and global standard setting bodies on trying to find ways to reach people who don't have access to good financial services and it's costly to serve poor people. Um, so the solution we, we worked on very much was the use of technology to reduce costs and enable reaching people who are kind of outside of literal bank branch locations. Um, this work um, uh, dovetailed with the emergence of e-money issuers and other payment institutions, and, and those kinds of institutions um, started becoming an important um, element of financial sectors in countries that had less expansive and established um, banking systems. So some of you may be familiar with M-Pesa in Kenya, which was launched in 2007, 
around the same time, even a little bit before in the Philippines, there were e-money issuers that were launched. So we were working, um, was working at a consultative group to assist the poor. A few of my colleagues are here um, to try to understand what are these institutions? How do they operate? How are the risks that they present to the financial sector similar and different from the risks presented by more traditional financial institutions that regulators are familiar with? And we started mapping out risks and benefits and what, how the regulations addressed those risks or didn't. And we worked with the Basel Committee and, and we worked with the FATF, which addresses money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, how do you combat those things or avoid those things? Um, so that was um, for the past 17 years or so that, that was the work that I was doing, um, but before PayPal and at PayPal, the, it, it's a, it's a, Tremendous company. Uh, it operates in almost every country in the world. Um, it has about a dozen licensed entities, including a bank in Luxembourg that it uses to passport into 28 countries. So um, notwithstanding that bank, it can't use the bank in, in uh, most countries. Well, it can't use the bank actually outside of the European Union today. Um, so there are licenses in many countries in Asia Pacific region, and there are other licenses that it holds um, in, in um, trying to think which ones still exist. There's a license in Canada, but managing those burdens and the variation across regulatory regimes is very challenging. Um, you know, things change all the time. Regulators look at what's going on in other markets and try to follow or avoid what's not what's either been done well or not so well in other markets. So as a large global institution, trying to keep on top of those changes and then actually implement the controls that you must do to be in compliance is um, a 24-hour challenge. Um, and for a tech company, some of the big challenges are how do you actually get into your platform and work on your platform when you're doing 24-7 services for your customers? You can't uh, I mean, you're that, that expression of, you know, you're, you're fixing the plane mid flight. It is literally that. So you can sometimes isolate. I mean, you have to be able to isolate portions of the platform to work on, but the platform has a finite, uh, working space. So you can't necessarily address all challenges at the same time. So this is where I'm coming from thinking about, um, innovation, which I've seen both as, as a part of a necessity in some markets and as a part of a desirability in other markets. We've heard some discussions about what is innovation, um, what is just something kind of a shiny new thing, but not innovative. I've been thinking about these things in, in the context of both of these areas of work. And um, that's what I'm going to focus my comments on. So I'm sure... Some people in the room, maybe not everybody has an appreciation of the tremendous um, burden and pressure that financial regulators are on, especially uh, following the financial crisis. But they always have been, um, ha have had responsibilities at least for the past 100 or so years. But in the past 30 years, um, the regu financial regulators have um, and the, the responsibility to ad address issues relevant to financial services and financial institutions has expanded way beyond what was the more limited scope, limited but very important scope of prudential regulators to attend to microprudential and macroprudential risks, stability of the uh, financial system, price stability. These things were kind of the bread and butter of financial regulators for many years. Um, 
I'm going to kind of go through a list of the additional areas of regulation that now append to most financial services and that must be taken into consideration either by one regulatory body with all these responsibilities or by um, regulators in collaboration with each other. So in addition to this macro and micro um, stability issues, we have regulators responsible for keeping crime out of the financial sector and specifically looking at money laundering and more recently combating financing of terrorism and fraud. We have regulators since the financial crisis who are devoted, as we've been discussing today, to consumer protection. We also have um, a very important and newer area of um, regulation, which is um, data protection, personal data protection and privacy, um, cybersecurity. Um, so all these, and, and then, of course, stability of, of the payment system, not stability, I was to say efficiency and safety of the payment system. So all of these um, areas of law and regulation now um, need to be taken into consideration when we're looking at new innovations that introduce benefits, as Kate raised the question of, you know, what are the benefits of the innovations and the risks? All th- those, that group of regulators or that one omni regulator has to try to understand what are the different risks that are, are presented by an innovation. And if it's a very complex technological innovation, they have to understand in some measure what is the tech- technology itself. And as we've just heard in the last um, panel discussion, regulatory sandbox can give a regulator a window into understanding what exactly are the operations of a company that's utilizing a new technology and um, what does that t- technology consist of? Is it something that requires additional regulatory requirements or is it something that is quite similar to or fits under an existing um, framework? Um, so I would like to um, maybe just probe a little bit or, or or give a list of some of the um, innovations that I, I see in the field of financial services, innovations through the use of technology, because I think we've been talking about general things and technology in, in other realms. But I think um, first, just to point out that money, uh, which has existed for several thousands of years, is probably one of the great inventions as opposed to innov- innovations, like an in- invention of humans. And it functions as uh, a medium of exchange, so we can barter. We, I mean, we we can we can move away from the barter of cows and and corn. Um, it functions as a unit of account or a numeraire and as a store of value. So that was an extraordinary thing. And from there, there's been the development of these primary financial services that we all use: so payments, transfers, loans, or credit, savings, and insurance. Those are the basic elements. So what is new? What does technology bring to these financial services that is innovative and that may require regulators to um, to somehow uh, address new risks? So um, there are new means for the delivery of financial services. I mean, new maybe over the past um, 10 years for the most part or 15. So you can now access financial services through your phone. Um, meaning you see everything on this little device that obviously raises consumer protection issues. Do you understand? Do you get the right information? Do you, when you sign on to terms and conditions, are you able to comprehend it through reading this small fine print what, what you're signing up for? So this is a, a use of a technology for means of delivery of financial services. 
Um, there are ways that that technology has been used for um, to do automated onboarding of customers, um, bringing down the costs and increased efficiencies. So the question there is that a new technological advancement is it is it an innovation? Is it just an efficiency? The you know I'm I'm kind of raising that as a question for you and for me. Um, there are faster and better ways for financial services to understand the risks and um, of new customers in particular, and that's through the use of um, big data and algorithms. Um, there are new means of assessing uh, transaction risks and the risks of fraud that are quite sophisticated. We, I mean, PayPal has a tremendous uh, fraud team that has very advanced technology that they use and have been incredibly successful at identifying in advance fraud risks. And um, a few more, um, uh, very interesting, uh, for me, very interesting example of um, using technology for smallholder farmers, that's farmers who live on a few hectares of land, um, for them to obtain um, drought insurance. Um, and it involves using your mobile phone, which transmits your location and then um, helps you and helps the insurance company to see where you are, how you are, and to price the drought insurance. And also it provides a means for you to actually make payments for premia and get payouts when there is an event, a triggering event. And then there are also big issues like the use of cloud storage um, for financial institutions. So I've tried to give a range of the um the uses of technology to deliver for for financial institutions to deliver to new people and to deliver to existing customers, but maybe in a quicker way, a more effective way, a cheaper way, bringing down the prices for consumers. Um, so regulators have to, as I said, understand the technologies themselves that are being used, at least to the extent that will enable them to assess what are the risks that they need to be concerned about. and. Um, and uh, and then determine whether they need to take action. Uh, I think in part, and this was raised by a few of the questions in the last session, um, whose job is it, whose role is it, whose position is it to assess whether an innovation is worth the risks that it might present? Um, who evaluates what the benefits are of an innovation and how to balance that out? And then if the benefits seem to outweigh the risks, then to go forward with certain measures that might be necessary. I think this is a very complicated um, uh, and, and uh, question that is resolved um, kind of on the operating table. Um, and there are various factors that, that push regulators to in one direction or another. We know today, for instance, in the United States, and when you look at the regulators, actually, I just want to comment, having just come back from having lived in Singapore for a year where I worked and, and uh, with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Monetary Authority of Singapore is a phenomenal regulator. You know, it's an island, uh, it's a city-state of, I think, six million people, but it's the hub for a lot of international financial institutions. So they have a really interesting... Um, stakeholder base and that the Monetary Authority of Singapore has just revamped their entire um, approach to regulating financial institutions to be activity-based so that they can grapple with and deal more efficiently and effectively with what they see as the risks of certain activities posed by technology and other things. 
But if you compare the monetary authority of Singapore and you then you look to, for instance, the People's Bank of China, which has um, a population of 1.4 billion. Um, they have WeChat Pay and Alibaba who serve about 1.1 billion customers. Um, mobile payment transactions in ch- um, that run in China, I think they totaled $17 trillion um, a year or two ago. I think mobile payment transactions in the United States are in the hundred and something billion dollar range per annum. So when you think about these differences, you also have to think about, well, a technological, a technology and an innovation um, in a market like Singapore versus China versus the United States versus, let's say, Mexico or Rwanda. I mean, that same innovation might mean something really different, both in terms of the benefits and the risks. So these are the things that regulators are grappling with. I find it fascinating. I've become very wonky as I've gotten um, uh, over the past 20 or 30 years. I, I think these things, I mean, some people find financial services quite dull and regulation quite dull. I think it's um, phenomenal because it, it, it requires and regulators are required to um, forge a path in this very dynamic stressful but exciting um, field, which is so inherently important to all of our lives. Do we get financial services that are meaningful, that are safe, that are efficient, that uh, we understand? Um, do we pay the right prices for them? Regulators have a finger in different pots trying to figure out what is the right thing that should be happening. So, um, so as I was saying before, when regulators are evaluating risk versus benefit, they are thinking about their own financial sector, but they're also very much thinking about what is the global competition doing, both what are other regulators doing and what are financial institutions? Who are the, who's the competition for our, and this is a very national way of looking at it, but it's, it's what they do. Who is the competition for our financial institutions in our markets? Are we able to um, provide them with a landscape where they can compete against these other providers. So, um, I think there are, um, there are some tools that regulators use to get a handle on the technologies. One has been discussed already, regulatory sandboxes, which perform a different function internationally from in the United States, for sure. And that is because the United States, if you think about the regulatory framework and financial services, it's uh, very complex. If you had to map it out, I think it would be almost completely filled with cobwebs and other, you know, spider webs that are effective. Um, but there are some countries, and I'll give one illustration, which is Kenya, where um, there are very few regulations. There was no National Payment Systems Act in Kenya when M-Pesa was launched. There was no... Um, it, actually, the the central bank of Kenya couldn't even agree: should it be bank supervision, or should it be the payment systems department that determines how to regulate this entity? They didn't have any e money law, e money regulations, so they were working on a blank slate. When you're a regulator working on a blank slate, the regulatory sandbox is very helpful. It's not you're not carving out something saying you don't have to comply with the regulations. You're, you're enabling a kind of activity that is not yet regulated because there's very little regulation. So you see these concepts and these tools are different here from other countries. So one tool for understanding technology is regulatory sandboxes. Another, which is similar and which is what happened in Kenya is what's called test and learn. So you keep your eye very closely honed in 
um, on a provider who's doing something new with knowledge, with an interaction. Actually, the Central Bank of the Philippines, the uh, BSP, uh, was did this with e-money. They were very observant, tightly observing what the providers were doing there. Um, I think BSP was one of the first central banks, if not the first central bank that had its own technology department that it hired into. It was in the early 2000s. So this test and learn is another kind of variation of the sandbox. Um, another critical thing that seems obvious, but it's hard to do is to do hiring and staff training for the people working in the regulatory body itself. Of course, it's really hard to hire technologists. I think there was a comment earlier that we want the industry to be ahead of the, of the regulators. I think industry will usually be ahead of the regulators because industry pays more. Although in some countries, the regulator has the um, stature in society. So in, for instance, in Singapore, people want to go work at the Monetary Authority of Singapore. It's a very elevated position to have and, and people make good salaries. So you could, potentially attract people who have the same capabilities, education, training, experience, you can attract them from the private sector. But if not, then you have to find a way to bring people on staff who have the ability and the um, the access to resources so that they can become uh, sufficiently informed to evaluate technology and its risks. Um, I think I'm going to stop here, except for I did want to make one quick comment about um, how technology also benefits regulators, um, which regulators definitely have um, been using uh, big data. And there's one very interesting example of regulators in Austria working together with most of the banks out of 3,000 and something banks, I think 90 something percent of the banks work together with the regulator owning um, uh, um a facility that um, holds all the information of all the banks. All the information of all the banks goes into the um, this cube. It's called it's called a cube. Nobody can access that information. Nobody actually wants to access the information. The regulator doesn't want to access the information because they don't want to be responsible for analyzing all that information. But what they have done is to um, work out a tech. You use a technology, I think, developed by Bearing Point that um, enables the regulator to deliver to this this facility um, the regulatory requirements, and then the facility draws the data using technology draws the data necessary for the regulator to evaluate compliance with the regulatory requirements. Once the regulator changes its regulatory requirements, these changes automatically go into the facility. The banks don't have to do anything new. The regulator then gets the data that's actually responsive to the new regulatory requirements. This is a phenomenal, in my opinion, phenomenal development because complying with changing regulations and regulatory requirements, as I said before, it's it's a monstrous activity for financial institutions, especially large ones. So, um, so regulators ha- are starting to use technology as a way for receiving information, uh, processing information, um, and working together with financial institutions. Um, I'm going to stop here. I don't know if I've gone over time, but I'm looking forward to questions and I'm hoping I can answer them. I call, okay, does that, all right, does anybody have a question? Yeah, there are two people here. How you place bitcoins and cryptocurrencies and what you said? Mm-hmm. In terms of how they should be regulated? Re- regulated or 
Yeah. Yeah, I was anticipating this this question coming. So, um, so Bitcoin is um, regulated different ways by different regulators. Um, and I th- think I'm I should say I'm not an expert on Bitcoin. I've actually never been involved in any serious discussion on the regulation of Bitcoin, but it's a cryptocurrency. So it's covered by usually by some kind of currency related regulations, whether it's treated as a security or how it's treated. You want to answer the question? Because I'm happy to get some help. <laughs> no, I'm serious. If you if you want to speak up. If... Well, my knowledge is the IRS handling it as a commodity asset. Yes. So that if you buy low and sell high, you have a capital gain right. in terms of U.S. dollars. That's right. Therefore. That's right. So, um, I, I think the question of, for me, the question of what does Bitcoin have to offer? Um, and why is that an innovation? Is it an innovation or is, how is cryptocurrency going to advance financial sectors? And, As international exchange of value, right. so you can use this in for for general. So it's much more on for financial markets oriented question than for practical day by day trade services. Yeah. Yes, um, so I, I think there there are different kinds of cryptocurrency. There's now most recently a discussion about digital central bank currency which is encrypted. I mean, there are different solutions. Some are blockchain, some are not blockchain. There are non-blockchain um, cryptocurrencies that are currently being um, developed by technology companies. And then there's, um, and those central bank, um, dig- the digital central bank currencies, there are options to have those just be um, wholesale level currency. And there are other options for it to be a, um, retail level. So delivery directly to the customer. These are all information. Um, I think it's really complex. I mean, obviously the question of issuing currency is, um, is for the reasons I said at the very beginning of the talk, right? The, what is the role of money? So it's not just a store of value. It's a unit. It's a, the numeraire has to do with, do you understand what the value of that currency is? So now if I have a dollar, I know I can buy a pack of gum with it. How many, you know, Bitcoin, when you look at Bitcoin, when the first transaction was May of 2010, right? A guy bought a pizza. Some people know this guy bought a pizza with 10,000 Bitcoin. The pizza, two pizzas. It was worth, I think, Papa John's, about $41. Today, does anybody know what 10,000 Bitcoins are worth today? $87 billion. That's not even 10 years ago. So these things, I mean, it's a very, uh, Serious uh, technological invention uh, or innovation on currency, and um, yeah, I think that that it's. I think I'm not equipped to say much more than that. Actually, yeah, okay, yeah, Adam. So PayPal was a very different company when you joined it than when you left. Over 17 years, it grew and changed in many ways. I'm curious what that evolution was like and, and how that evolution informs what you do now at GECO, a startup. Mm-hmm. So actually, I joined PayPal after the separation from eBay, but I do know about um, 
and, and, and actually, I'm really glad you asked this question. I do n- know and, and, and observed things, um, having come from much more traditional financial sector background. When you are, um, a technology company, um, which PayPal was a technology company. It's now a, a series of financial institutions using technology. So it's a fintech, although, um, uh, some people would still say it's a technology company that, that it happens to be offering financial services. That mentality is, uh, coming from tech is very different from coming from the financial world. And I think the most, um, striking difference for me is when you come from finance, you understand the importance of the relationship with the regulator. At PayPal, there is a very good understanding of the importance of the relationship with the regulator. But I think that that was something that evolved um, at, during and perhaps through the separation with eBay, this um, awareness, even though there was already a bank and a few other licensed financial institutions under the PayPal umbrella, but this awareness throughout the company of 20,000 people about what, uh, what do we, what do we need to be thinking about when we are innovating? It's very much what are the regulators thinking? What are the requirements? Where are they headed? Where are they headed in this market versus that market? You know, where are the opportunities? That's part of building a regulatory strategy is trying to find if we have this great idea, we can't do it in this country. They don't need it in that country. So you kind of look around and see where does it make sense to launch this? Um, that's another interesting part just about being in a, in a global company is you have these, um, opportunities. Um, sometimes it's frustrating because you see the potential to deliver a, a product to your customers in a country, but it just won't work because the regulatory framework is either too unpredictable. That's the worst thing for, right? For everybody. It's the worst thing when you don't know where regulations are going. Um, or the regulations are inappropriate. I mean, there are definitely times when regulators want a, they want to see a certain thing. You might say, well, we're giving you the same quality of service and risk mitigation and management this way, but they want to see it this way because they're not comfortable with how are these two things similar and different. So at PayPal, one of the things, and this is bringing this into Jika, one of the things um, that PayPal is very invested in is um, working with regulators to explain to them what are the products and services? How do we work? How do we work in other markets? And having that open dialogue, um, which is beneficial to both PayPal because they're, they're, there's less, um, there, there's more trust, more awareness on the part of the regulator. Um, and hopefully over time, regulators will become more comfortable with what fintechs are doing broadly and then more specifically with their um, with their technology. As for Jico, it's a very young company. Um, we just went out of beta, so you can all go on an app and look at Jico, J-I-K-O. It's, it's a very exciting thing, um, but it started as a financial institution. It's, um, uh, well, it's actually three different companies kind of Together, they utilize a bank license, and then there is a broker-dealer license, and then a technology company. But the um, I see that the uh, kind of woven into the culture of the company today, which has I think twenty employees, um, is this awareness of the need to start off with regulatory um, understanding 
and complete understanding. So this kind of open books, everything is, is vetted, examined, and there's a certain amount of excitement, um, on the part of the regulator. I know somebody made a comment, um, I think you made a comment before about the concern with the regulator getting along too well with the company. I think that regulatory capture is always a risk, but I think that when regulators are comfortable with, with the provider, there, there are human dynamics in these relationships. So I think those are very positive, um, for both sides and less, less need to be fearful. Yes. So, um, I think the man next to Adam and then the two of you, I'm sorry. Yeah. One, two. I wondered about whether you're knowledgeable and have comments on uh, the time limits uh, for authenticity on sales through, say, eBay or even Amazon. And then the problem with PayPal, uh, you get supposedly either get what you pay for or you get your money back. But sometimes it takes, you know, a month or two, more than a month to find out if the item is authentic. If, if you have a question of authenticity and the problem it keeps growing, especially with material coming from China, uh, claiming to be an original one when it isn't. Uh, there's counterfeits, there's replicas, uh, you can go on and on and on. Uh, what, you know, can PayPal extend its, uh, warranty for say a year to, to find out if something is or isn't authentic? Uh, it would help the buyer. Uh, it, it might be a problem for the seller, but, uh, there's more safety. Yes. So, um, I can't speak about Amazon or eBay, but, um, buyer protection is available to customers who use, uh, credit cards for their purchases. Um, the limit, I, I don't know if it's in every market, but I think the upper limit for PayPal, um, is 180 days. It's really interesting that there are discussions, you know, there, there are discussions, um, with the, um, different companies are having with regulators who, for instance, in India, the RBI has a new requirement for data localization. All data on Indian Indian citizens, I think, must be held in India. Um, It's a really challenging thing if you store your data in the cloud or if you store your data in another country that you now must build a a housing place in India. but one of the reasons why people store data and why PayPal would store data is for exactly the purpose that you're you're talking about, you know, claims of inauthenticity. So the buyer didn't get what the buyer thought that she or he was buying. So then the question is, how long could, for instance, PayPal keep data on a particular transaction um, and still be in compliance with Indian regulations on data localization? If we if we do analysis of um, fraud in a location outside of India. I say we, um, sorry, if PayPal does that. So I, I don't know about over a year for over, over 180 days up to a year. Um, that's always a business decision because you're then, you know, you don't know if you're going to have a liability and how you would collect on that. That's the best I can do to answer for PayPal. But I think it's a, it's, I think 180 days is, is, in the abstract, it sounds like a reasonable amount of time, but I hear what you're saying. Sometimes it's really not because you're not getting, uh, you, you don't have awareness in a shorter period of time. Yeah. So, uh, I just have a very quick question. Yeah. You kind of alluded to it and maybe you don't have fully formed thoughts on this. And I also don't want to push you to say something that is impolitic or whatever, but I'm curious if you have thoughts on what regulations or regulators are, especially looking at it globally. Some people would say it's just rent extraction. Sometimes it's 
representing political interests for access to a market, safety? Are these representatives of a certain people? Like, how do you, do you have a theory of like, what is a regulator? Uh-huh. So I, I think there's variation. I, I think in financial services, there is, if nobody believed it 10 years ago, most people believe it today. You need somebody watching the hen house. You know, you, people who have, who handle money want some of that money. Financial institutions will take the money that they can get. There's, you know, I'm not saying financial institutions, the people who work in them, including myself, people who run them, um, are bad people, but there are going to be people first who are bad and there are going to be a lot of people who just say, Oh, I just want one more penny on the dollar. And, we know what's going on in this cooker, so we can take it and the customer won't, won't really notice. I think there's for sure a need for regulation. So what is the quality of a regulator? And as I said before, there are different regulators, prudential, consumer protection, data protection, AML. Um, you know, it, it depends on um, where you grow up and the reputation of the regulator. So as I said, in Singapore, the MAS, very very established institution, very highly respected internationally and in the country. Um, and in other markets, it, it might be less so. Um, I think that regulators get, I mean, I think it's natural for regulators to be risk averse. Like if you're a regulator and you take a risk with an innovation, what does that get you? Do you get a bonus? Probably not. You shouldn't be getting a bonus. Um, do you get a job at that company? Maybe, but if it, it most, I think most of the time regulators are just trying to stay by the books and do the right thing. Um, by the books, not stretch. Um, the downfall of making a bad decision is enormous, both personally for the regulatory body and also for national economy, a local economy, a global economy. I mean, so I guess I think, you know, regulators are humans. So they have the same statistically qualities, but there are certain things about their job and rewards, how they get rewarded and, and how they, um, what kind of regulatory agency they sit in that will affect whether, what, what they're like. Um, so earlier you mentioned central bank experiments with cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, and it got me thinking, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on the respective divisions of responsibilities in the future between the public and private sector when it comes to actually maintaining payments infrastructure. I mean, it seems to me that we're getting close to a point where it's not too hard to imagine using technologies like blockchain um, in a way where a central bank could literally process payments, not just for member banks, but for big companies and even for individual households. Do you see that becoming an eventuality? If so, like along what timetable and what would be the implications for banks and e-payments processors like, like PayPal? So there are two different startups in the Bay Area. One um, is working on a central bank, um, a digital currency that would enable um, these retail payments. I don't know today what central bank has the appetite to take that on and why they would want to, but there's the technology to make that happen. The reverse, there's a, there's also another um, startup where um, 
well, it's not located in the Bay Area, actually, but it's called RTGS Global. So real-time gross settlement, it, um, referring to, you know, the settlement of, of accounts between financial institutions, which is typically handled by the central bank. There's now the development of technology where that would be done privately. And that is really exciting for, for financial institutions because that, that can be done 24 seven. So some of the challenges today in payments is that, um, things do shut down over the weekend. Regulators, I mean, there are a lot of people who aren't still, fortunately for them, don't work Saturday and Sunday. So when you have a weekend, you might, you might have, um, things happening over the course of the weekend, payments being made, transfers, charges, debits, and you don't necessarily see that until Monday morning. And the thing is, when it's Monday in Australia, it's Sunday in the United States. So, and when it's Friday in, uh, in New York, it's Saturday in Singapore. So there's actually a big period of the week where there are dis, there's, there's no communications that, at least not complete communications. So that technology, which could really boost things, both in terms of the ability of central banks to see what's going on with financial institutions and financial institutions in return, feeling um, that they have access to the information and they also have to be accountable for that information within their own institution. I see this as a potential game changer. Um, very exciting, but probably not in 2020, so maybe 2020 that, that, that could be launched. But I see that as, uh, so private sector going into and assisting the central banks in a role. I see that much more likely personally than the other direction. Yeah. I was very intrigued by, I think you said it was in Austria, the cube yeah. model. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about, uh, who funded that at yeah. instigation? So it sounded like it was voluntary, but like 90%. It's called Abacus. I think the technology was developed by Bearing Point and they kind of shopped it around. Um, and Austria, it's Austria. So without the, yeah, Austria, the central bank, um, yeah, it appealed to them. And I think the key it, for my, Viewpoint. The key is that it's a partnership, that it's a joint ownership of this facility. So it's not the central bank imposing and that they had almost all of the banks. Really interesting. I never studied what about those banks who decided not to join because they're not in that. So they have to respond to changes on their own. But um, it, it was developed maybe five or seven years ago. I did speak with the central bank a few years after it was up and running. They had six data guys working full-time. It was really hard to find people who were qualified to do this, um, but they did, and um, it's been very successful. Um, yeah, so you can look it up, Abacus, by bearing point. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much for all the questions. <laughs>